Hello and welcome to Under Common Taste. This is a podcast where we create and discuss homebrew content for tabletop RPGs. This week we remind you, inspiration is where you find it. I'm Ian Woodworth, I'm joined by my co-host James Daly, and today we are revisiting an episode from the Wayback Machine. Uh, (laughs) We're going all the way back to episode 19 and our happy little town of Verdigree. Now, Verdigree is a fun town. We, Like I said, it was episode 19. We kind of cobbled this town together. And I believe we mentioned it in in the podcast. I can't remember if we edited it out or not. But there is a song I enjoy. It's on my Spotify playlist called The Copper Wars by the band The Cog is Dead. And the town mentioned in this song is called Verdigree Patina, which is a great, great name for any mining town. It's just, it fit perfectly. And this song has the theme, because again, it's the Copper Wars. Give it a listen. It's really good. But it kind of got the wheels turning. And I kind of wanted to try to build some scenarios around loosely based off the concepts in the song. Yeah, and we got to talking about it. And I can't remember. I think you initially brought up that you wanted to have a green dragon involved. It was your idea. I I definitely wanted the copper dragon, but then you brought up the green dragon and talking about that whole corrosion or corruption, because when copper does corrode and when it patinas, again, going with the verdigree patina, verdigree is that green color. And so kind of, you know, a little bit of a spoiler, but we are going to have some draconic conflict. So we are going to have a green dragon in here. We're going to have a copper dragon. We started digging through the lore because that's what we do, because, oh, my God, lore and and old stuff. (laughs) And more and more, it fits perfect for this town if it's perfect for the scenario it's like it was destined it's just it's beautiful (laughs) yeah because we had some general ideas of how we wanted it to go and then we started reading into the lore and it's like the dichotomy between the personality types of archetypical green and copper dragons it just fit just the way that we wanted it to go. So what we're going to do is we're going to go ahead and we're going to just do a quick and dirty recap of what we built when we established Verdigree. And then we're going to get into some of the Draconic lore. And then we're going to kind of build some scenarios around that. So eventually maybe we can draw some out and get some table ready stuff for you all as well. Yeah. And if you want to go back and listen, please do. Please also forgive the fact that we were still running off of headset microphones and recording through Discord. (laughs) And there's all sorts of pet noises and crackles, (laughs) and I hadn't figured out how to use my editing software very well yet. So it is a rough episode, apropos for an early episode, but... And rough for a mining town. I kind of like it. You get that roughneck feel. I'm not going to apologize. (laughs) But but the content is solid. That's right. Just like a good ore. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So Verdigree was a frontier town. The way we had set it up because we had initially talked about it further back in episode five, where we were talking about incorporating fallen civilizations into your game world. Verdigree was a town within a kingdom that had fallen about 50 to 60 years prior to present day per the story. We had determined that it was a famine that resulted from an insect plague that had caused the population to flee the country and the country itself to collapse. And after a certain amount of time, the diaspora from that country wanted to go back and reclaim their homeland. And nature had pretty well overtaken a lot of stuff because it has laid abandoned for 50, 60 years. 
but the town is built around what was an established and very productive mithril mine. And so it was lucrative to go back and establish a town and open the mine back up because it was also very close to the border to another one of these city states in this region that we were using in my homebrew world called Escalonia, which is sort of based loosely off of Renaissance Italy. So it's a bunch of city states that butt heads, but don't actually go into all out war against each other very often. Right. It's more politics and maneuvering. In this oh, yes. Case. Very much. It is a very heavily intrigue-based interaction between these city-states, and they're always trying to one-up each other. So the city-state that is on the border, which we just called the sponsor, we never actually gave them a name, they are sponsoring this expedition to establish this town, and there is a quote-quote company that is running the mine that is ostensibly affiliated with the government or the ruling class of this sponsor state. Right. Now with this, we kept it literally the company as the name of the company. And we were definitely hearkening back to, again, some local history for Ian and I kind of growing up. Well, I live in the Appalachia. Ian grew up here, but the Appalachians, you got, you know, far West Virginia, the state of West Virginia, Northeast Tennessee, but you have those old coal mining towns where the entire town and settlement were literally run by the mining company and they controlled every aspect of life within the town. And so we kind of were giving Verdigree this semi-authoritarian feel that the company is everything here. Yes. The population of this particular town is going to have a fairly large dragonborn population because these city-states are the region of my world where the dragonborn are native. This is also a region where there are a lot of dragons, and quite often there is a dragon acting as the figurehead of a city-state. And so the conflicts between individual city-states are often a macro scale of the conflicts between individual dragons. And so dragons and draconic symbolism and dragonborn, they are all very prominent in this region. And so we had a fairly large dragonborn population within this town. But because it is also a mining town, we also had some of your stereotypical, uh, what was the word that we went with? Less um, civilized? <laughs> less refined. Less I think refined, was, that's what we were going I with. I think that yeah. was the term, because we didn't want to use terms like brutish. But your larger humanoid uh, races, so the more commonly associated with strength-based attributes, right? So, so again, Goliaths with and these, orcs. Oh, sorry, goblins, goblinoids. Now, again, with this too, this is going to be very much was previously and now a frontier town. So it does sit rather on the edge of the wilds, and so again, kind of thinking. Old West, you know, maybe Australian outback again. I think United I referred States. I think I referred to it as Carson City. Yeah, that kind of thing. So there's not going to be a lot of teetotalers here. You're not going to have your upper class gentlemen with your monocles, with the rare exception. These are going to be your roughnecks. Yeah, these are definitely going to be some salt of the earth sort of people that are in here. So you're going to have, you know, your Goliaths and Orcs. You're going to have Goblinoids. You're going to have Dwarves and Gnomes because it is a mine. Right. We had established, just mainly because we thought it was cool, that there were going to be Formians in the mines. We incorrectly called them Foramen. 
<laughs> but yeah. there were Formians down in the mines. These are the ant centaur people that are native to Mechanus and Arcadia in the Outer Plains. They are lawful aligned outsiders, but they've got this hive mind sort of telepathic connection between them. And they are very expansionist. And so somehow this one Formian queen managed to find her way into the bottom of this mine and has established a colony down here. And we had established that there might be some interaction, some hostility between the miners and the Formians, but we never really played that out. Right. No, if you are able to separate the art from the artist, Orson Scott Card and the Ender series is a great way to kind of look at that with the buggers, you know, kind of have that. They tend to be lawful. In Ender's game, they tend to be more lawful neutral. I mean, the humans found them as evil as an expansionist and a threat, but as the series go on, they're not really. Another way to do this is I was joking with show prep that we might, you know, eventually run a StarCraft riff with this because we've got a fairly established three factions now and the Formians definitely would be the Zerg. So, I mean, it kind of gives you that hive mind, large numbers just kind of spread out. They really are an interesting enemy to kind of throw on the table. You don't see them all the time. They're fun. I like them. And when episode 19 came out, I actually did a Formian write-up where I converted all of the Formians from the third edition monster manual into fifth edition because they hadn't made that jump yet. So you can find that on our Patreon account. That's right. They are prepped and ready for your table. So within the controlling entities of the town, you have the governor who is placed there by the sponsor state to make sure that everything is running according to the way that they want it. Right. But there is also a secondary group also associated with them that we called the Heritage Foundation, not to be confused with the actual Heritage Foundation. (laughs) Uh, Different group. Same name, different group. Yeah, it just sounded cool, so that's what we went with. But it's sort of a historical society where they are hiring people to go out into the wilderness to find old homesteads, to find old property boundary markers, to do surveying, to find indications of who owned sections of land from before for the diaspora to be able to find their ancestral claims and stake it. Right, because the company is here to make money. The sponsors are here to make money via the company, but a large number of the initial settlers that came with the company while they are working are here to reclaim a lost home in one form or another. And again, as they have established, you are going to have more people because the mine, again, is profitable. It is productive. There are going to be other things, but a large number came here to reestablish historic roots. Yes. As a rudimentary um, justice system, we had the pit, which is the dumping ground where they dump all the dross. So all of the stone that comes out with the ore that doesn't actually have ore in it and is therefore not useful, but it has to get pulled out anyway or otherwise it gets in the way. This is the pit where they dump all of that. And they have it's basically a brawling pit where if you have beef with somebody You go to the pit after your shift is done and you slug it out and settle it. Right, because we established there are very firm rules about conflict within the mines because it could be so dangerous. You could, one, wipe out the town's profit. Two, you could 
cause a cave-in and, and cause harm or death to any number of people. And so within the mines, the mines themselves largely are a neutral territory. There is no conflict allowed. If there's an issue, trial by arms in the pit, you settle it there. And the pit is run by Judge Judy. Absolutely. We, we cannot. We, we gotta love Judge Judy. <laughs> Judge Judy is a crusty old retired dwarf paladin. She <laughs> and, and, and she governs over the fights of the pit with all of the authority of a crusty old dwarven paladin. And true to life, you cannot pee on her and tell her training. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> so we also established that there is a miners guild who operates as sort of a foil to the company. The company controls the mine and they control the profits coming out of the mine, whereas the miners guild represents the miners that go into the mine. And so they're establishing safety for those miners. They're establishing who gets what shifts. They determine how long a shift is. They determine how many shifts a worker gets, those sorts of things. Right. And again, we drew this a lot from Appalachian history. Again, looking at your 20s and 30s when these guilds and these eventual unions did start to form to protect the workers and their workers' rights to make sure they were not overworked or taken advantage of Uh, it was a bit earlier than that i believe i believe it was the 1880s 1870s 1880s was when it really started picking up gotcha um because i think that i think the pinkertons were called in in west virginia to start breaking up the mining unions in the mid 1880s i could be wrong on that that would be correct for the Pinkertons because then they were the ones that chased Jesse James and the Youngers, and that was about the right time. So yeah, that's probably correct. Future Ian here with a correction. James was actually right on the time period here. The coal mine unionization effort really got underway post-World War One, and the crackdowns really started in force in 1920, culminating in the Battle of Blair Mountain in 1921. I've included a link talking about the Battle of Blair Mountain in the show notes. We established that there was a black market within this town. This is how the workers actually got legitimate coin because the company pays out in scrip. And you have to take your company scrip to the company store and cash in your scrip to buy what you need from the company store. Again, playing off of that, you know, Appalachia coal mines sort of vibe. The captain of the company security the the guards of the town is also the person running the black market because they get a cut off the top and it's lucrative for them because ostensibly they're also getting paid in script correct now we had said largely the black market's going to run off of raw gems mined from the mine so while you're down there working and something shiny pops out the wall or you, you discover you know a nice cove of crystals some might accidentally fall into a pocket or two. And that's what wound up going on the black market. We also started discussing that maybe food product, because again, while the area was largely wiped out for the farmlands because of the famine, people are starting to kind of grow foods. So foods that haven't been brought and supplied by the company wagon trains, which would be heavily preserved and probably not high quality, would be bad. So if you could find, farm some fresh food, grow your own, kind of hunt your own. Again, tying in with the same theme, but in the early Hunger Game books, that was how a lot of them, they had a black market for that. Yeah, kind of had that same thing. So again, raw gems, foodstuffs, 
possibly some finished goods depending, but the black market and they would trade physical real money. But those were the things that they would generally look for on the black market. And I would definitely say that the coin coming in is coming in from caravan guards yeah, because they are coming in with the caravans and they're going to go in here and they're going to spend their coin to get these uncut gems to take them back and resell whenever they get home. Right. Because those caravan guards, while they may be hired by the company, they are not employees of the company. company. And if you're not part of this getting paid in script, just don't fly. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the, is it Gravity Falls? That one meme where the kid is looking at the piece of paper and it says, wow. And then it cuts to the next frame where he's looking at the person who gave it to him and says, this is useless. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's pretty much what somebody who is not staying within the town is going to think of company script if someone tries to pay them in script. Right. And again, this was a way for the company to kind of exert control over Verdigree because while Verdigree is trying to establish themselves, the company is trying to keep a very firm hand on everything as well. So this is another way they're going to exercise that control and then from a religious aspect there's not a lot of established religion here these are a bunch of working folk they don't have the luxury of going and having religious holidays Um, (laughs) but bahamut is big here because this is dragonborn country moradin and garl glitter gold are both going to be big here because there's large dwarf and gnome populations here there's also a druid grove nearby we didn't really flesh that out a whole lot we just established that there was one because we wanted that alternative to your just general deific worship that you get a lot of times in the quote-unquote civilized portions of DD. because this isn't civilized this is definitely out on the outskirts we are definitely on a fringe and so having that tie to nature out in the woods just feels right it does and then finally the guards within the town as we established they are employed by the company to secure the mines to secure the town and to secure the road that leads into town and we as we have said that there will also be guards that travel with the supply caravans but aren't necessarily employees of the company and so they're going to be paid in coin they are going to be running with these caravaneers who also may or may not actually be part of the company. These may be third-party entities that are under contract to haul this stuff in. Very likely to be, yeah, definitely third-party. Because that is a liability that the company doesn't want to take on. You don't want to buy the (laughs) carts and the things going in the carts if you can avoid it. It's better to have somebody else buy the carts and then you put your things in their carts. And then if something happens to your things, it's their fault. Those people are (laughs) responsible for it. Exactly. Insurance is a game, boys and girls. Yeah. And this is how rich people make money. Yeah. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) So this kind of fleshes out again, kind of gives you the feel of the, how Vertigree works, where it's at, what it does. And so like, again, we're tinkering around and we definitely wanted this green and copper conflict going back and forth and so again as we started breaking down some of this lore we saw how it fit what we want better and better so we're going to go ahead and dive in with a green dragon first the green dragon again where you have this wilds that have taken over the area fits for this and i'll let ian kind of 
to start in on with that. Yeah, because green dragons love forested areas. The bigger the trees, the better. Which makes me really disappointed because I grew up really close, like within an hour and a half of Sequoia National Park. I've gone there frequently. Not even one green dragon. And I mean, sequoias. (laughs) I mean, big trees, sequoias. Where's my damn green dragon? Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) It's probably a park ranger. (laughs) So I like to refer to green dragons as gaslighting motherfuckers. Because that is their whole M.O. Yeah, they're kind of assholes. (laughs) Not kinda. (laughs) All right, I'm going to read you a couple of direct passages from the lore pertaining explicitly to green dragons. A wily and subtle creature, a green dragon bends other creatures to its well by assessing and playing off their deepest desires. When manipulating other creatures, green dragons are honey-tongued, smooth, and sophisticated. Among their own kind, they are loud, crass, and rude, especially when dealing with dragons of the same age and status. And finally, green dragons accept the servitude of sentient creatures. A green dragon sometimes racks its minions' minds with fear to the point of insanity, with the fog that spreads throughout its forest reflecting those minions' tortured dreams. Yes, they are literally gaslighters. They are not good people. (laughs) No, they are decidedly not. But they do make fun villains, and that's why we have one. Absolutely. So they love to use misdirection and trickery to get the upper hand on their enemies. They take pleasure in subverting and corrupting the good-hearted, taking advantage of genuinely good people. Again, they're terrible individuals. Right. They are consummate liars and masters of double talk. They are especially aggressive when securing their territory, mostly to make sure that what is definitively theirs stays theirs. If you want a good pop culture reference to the type of mentality a green dragon's going to have, the Cardassians in Star Trek are perfect. Again, one of my favorite characters is Garrick. He was the Taylor spy in Deep Space Nine. But again, everything he said was double, triple meaning. You could never tell if he was talking straight to you or not. He always had this kind of quirky smile, like no matter what he said to you, there was a hidden joke and a lie and a truth all in the same statement. Again, very much about order, very much about power structure and rigidity, very much about their territorial boundaries and what was theirs was theirs and what was yours would eventually be theirs too. Yes. And green dragons are especially noteworthy for their willingness to act as a subordinate to bide their time to get what they want. Yes, everything a green dragon does is going to be underhanded. Very rarely will they be up in your face fighting you. Again, it's very... Peter Baelish from Game of Thrones would have a very green dragon feel to him. Uh, People who watched season one of Critical Role, Matt Mercer did a perfect job of depicting a green dragon in Raishan. Oh, nice, yeah. Raishan is a perfect example of what a green dragon should do this green dragon whenever it saw that the other members of the chroma conclave spoiler alert by the way um, (laughs) it's been what five years since this episode came out so i think we could call this one out (laughs) yeah whenever they started taking down the other members of the chroma conclave raishan approaches vox machina and just plays into this oh i want out And I will help you take down Thordak if it means me getting out. Because 
according to what they were telling them, Thordak had some secret to unraveling this curse, this affliction that they had because they had that like blight affliction up their face. I can't remember the details. It's It's been a while. It's been about five years or so. Yeah. <laughs> but they come out and they actually help them take down the white dragon. They actually assist Vox Machina in the fight against, I think it was Vorgal, the, the white dragon. So they actually turned against the other members of the Chroma Conclave whenever them being in the Conclave no longer advanced their goals. Right. And this would be a way for them to kind of knock down any enemies that were too hard for them to knock down on their own. Because, And again, this is exactly how they did. And of course, then at the end, after they take down Thordak, she swoops in and steals Thordak's body and flies off to her lair out in the middle of nowhere. And they have to track her down and they finally get to her. And I think Matt was expecting that arc to last a little bit longer. And then Keyleth hit Raishan with feeble mind and it stuck. Oops. <laughs> <laughs> Which just goes to show that your best laid plans will often just fall apart. Yeah, that happens a lot. One critical roll and it's done. <laughs> yeah, but the way that Raishan, at that point, the group of Vox Machina no longer was an asset. They were a liability. And so she turned on them because she thought that their usefulness was done. And so she was going to get them out of the way so that they wouldn't impede her further progress. Right. No. Yeah. Green Dragon will play every side of the field. Absolutely. As we said, their preferred biome are forests. They go from taiga to jungles and everywhere in between. They prefer to eat game animals. They can eat shrubs and vegetation if necessary. But according to lore, their favorite foods are elves and sprites for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why I didn't find an actual concrete reason for why they like to eat elves and sprites specifically. Because Gygax was bored. <laughs> I, I guess. <laughs> I mean, maybe there wasn't that much thought actually put into it. It's just like, oh, they're evil, so we're going to have them eat fairies and good humanoids that live in the woods. Yeah, that's probably it. Exactly it. <laughs> but they will accept the servitude of other sentient creatures, commonly goblinoids Edercaps, which are these real interesting creatures. We should do an episode on some of the lesser represented humanoids and okay. use Edercaps as one of the ones we do. Ettens, so the two-headed giant can, kobolds, orcs, and yonti. And their favorite treasures are powerful or renowned individuals whom they have bent to their will, such as popular folk heroes, well-known sages, and famous bards. Perfect. No, I like it. So they like to collect influential people. Again, did I say gaslighters? Yeah, I was going to say they're kind of like Slughorn from Harry Potter. Yeah, kind of. Yeah. So they form their lairs in the hearts of forests, and their lairs are identifiable as these moss-covered trees that grow really close together to form almost a maze you can easily get lost in. And the entire lair is shrouded by a perpetual fog that faintly smells of the dragon's poisonous breath, which is canonically chlorine gas. There's a happy feel. <laughs> so the entire forest faintly smells like a swing pool in the summer. Okay. Um, which is going to feel a little out of place. A little bit. Especially if you end up having it in like a taiga where it's, you know, a cold forest. Right. You know, you're walking into a cold forest and you smell swimming pool. <laughs> 
and the undergrowth and fallen leaves will muffle your steps. So you're naturally quieter whenever you're walking through their lair and everything has this faint hue of emerald green to it. Kind of um, pretty, actually. Yeah. <laughs> it's almost peaceful, except not. Except for the dragon. Yeah. <laughs> so they prefer to actually put their layers within caves within like sheer cliff sides or hillsides, generally away from prying eyes. They like putting them in things like caves that are hidden behind a waterfall or they'll magically grow vegetation around the outside of their cave in order to obscure the entrance. And one of the regional effects, once you get an old enough dragon that I really like for the greens is that all of the small birds and rodents within one mile of the dragon's lair serve as the dragon's eyes and ears and the dragon can see or hear anything they can. No, I like that a lot. And again, going through all this, talking about the vegetation, kind of how it grows everything, it grows densely. There's a lot of things, again, that overlook hue that really kind of goes with that theme of a town that nature has reclaimed or kind of taken over where, you know, just the forest kind of grows over the top of everything. So like I said, this fit really well. The temperament of the green dragon, like I said, we'll get into as we develop our scenario fit beautifully the fact that it likes these finished goods the wooden carving the musical instruments the emeralds which are going to be some of the raw gems that you can be pulling out of this mithril mine for the black market really goes well the fact that it wants to keep renowned individuals which we're gonna get one or two of here later again fits perfectly and so this green dragon really needed to be here so that pretty well takes care of the personality and the layer and all of that of a green dragon and why the green dragon should be here thematically. Let's get into the copper dragons. They are known as, quote, incorrigible pranksters, joke tellers, and riddlers. They're still kind of assholes, but they're fun assholes. And really, they are the perfect opposite end of the same coin that a green dragon would be. Where you have the lawful and evil, they have the same temperament more or less it's just one's good one's bad so i really like how these two fit together oh, yeah. these coppers they're going to be on the chaotic good so they are oh, yeah. actually definitely going to be completely axiomatically different yes these are that uncle that always pulls all of the practical jokes that always goes just a little too far yeah this guy watched way too much tiktok <laughs> this guy was the inspiration for the three stooges yes <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, by and large, they are considered gregarious and even-tempered. They love the company of others, mainly because it takes two to share a joke. Generally, jokes, yeah. jokes aren't funny whenever you're just telling them to yourself. You this want, is true. You you want to see someone react to that punchline, right? They tend to avoid the company of other copper dragons because it will inevitably result in a battle of wits and banter. That quickly escalates until one swears, quote unquote, revenge and flies off. It really resorts to violence, but they do tend to result in retaliatory wars of practical jokes and colorful insults that can last for centuries. This is going to be the best mage duel ever. <laughs> this reminds me, there was an old writing prompt on Facebook years and years ago talking about two immortal wizards that when they were friends and young, they had made an unbreakable pledge that they would never directly hurt each other or take each other's life. And then something happened and then they became bitter rivals. So they're constantly doing like the mage version of Grumpy Old Man, which is exactly <laughs> what this would be. Yes. 
So copper dragons can eat nearly anything, including metal ores. But their favorite foods are venomous creatures, especially, specifically, giant scorpions. They say that the venom, which they can digest without issue, sharpens their wits. And so they like to eat these sort of venomous creatures in order to sharpen their wits. It's kind of like eating that spicy chili, you know? It's kind of, it gives you that bit of rush and you feel excited and you get that, woo, my tongue's numb. <laughs> yeah. And the more you eat, the more you can tolerate. The more you have to eat. <laughs> So, well, yeah, that too. I get in that loop where if I'm eating salsa and then I get to that point where my tongue's all tongue, my tongue's all tongue, my tongue is all numb and tingly. And then if I stop, that burn really hits. But if you keep eating, it keeps your tongue numb. So you have to eat more <laughs> salsa because you ate too much salsa. And it's like, I can't stop. <laughs> yeah. So, copper dragons appreciate wit, a good joke, a humorous story. Or riddle. See, I would be good friends with a copper dragon. Me and a copper dragon, we'd be kind of awesome. They are generally considered good hosts towards people who have no ill intent towards them or their hordes. Fair enough. Don't steal my shit. We're good. They get annoyed with people who don't laugh at their jokes or who don't accept their pranks with good humor. So they don't like party poopers. They don't like Debbie Downers. Yeah, these are totally like your meme posters. What's there's a word for that. What the hell is it? It's not meme lord. It's something. Crap. Eh, anyway. Yeah. They're those people. They are understandably very fond of bards. Imagine that. And many copper dragons will actually have a special chamber within their layers where they have full accommodations and will basically give residency to a bard to come and live with them for a while and tell them stories and keep them entertained. And for an ancient dragon, a little while is probably a lifetime. So that's a pretty cool gig for a bard. Yeah, I mean, you're set up for life. Yeah, no, I like it. Um, Good deal. And plus that uh, polymorph, I mean, oh my. (laughs) There are many copper dragonborn, let me tell you. (laughs) Anyway. So they prefer to hoard treasures from the earth. So they like rare metals. They like precious stones. They also like statuary and fine ceramics. And they will often keep the pretty and worthless items out on display out near the entrance to their lair to sort of trick the people who would go in and steal their stuff to say, hey, here's all of my stuff on display And if you're good enough, you can take it. But it distracts from the fact that the actual real horde is hidden much deeper in the lair. And that's where all of the things that actually have value are. No, I like that. And they are wary of actually showing off any of their possessions. If they find out that a creature is looking for a specific item that they happen to have, they will more than likely try and misdirect them and lead them on a merry goose chase in search of the item rather than just giving it to them. Right. And again, that goes into the whole jokester mentality anyway, because you can just spin them around in circles and kind of chuckle while they're yes. while they're doing their thing. No, I like it. And yeah, like you were saying, they get a certain giddy satisfaction from watching others chase leads. Some of them probably being false leads that are planted by the dragon for their amusement. So copper dragons prefer to make their layers in dry uplands and on hilltops where they make their layers in narrow caves. They probably, if I had to guess, would 
like a cave where they'd have to change into a humanoid or a small beast form in order to get into it for the added security. The same reason that we gave for why kobolds would pick a certain cave to set up shop in. I like that. Something I read a while ago when I was looking up some dragon lore for a different project, but something the reds are really known for, I could see that the copper is doing as well, is where they like those narrow caves that kind of twist and turn. They make for a great bottleneck. So if they have to defend their lair for anything and they get everybody bottlenecked in, that makes a very juicy dragon's breath target. That makes then, a chimney, ladies and gentlemen. Yes. And so what they'll do is they will bottleneck in, hit a layer, and then feign a retreat back into a more narrow area where they have plenty of room to move. And as everyone's crunched in, they just go ahead and go full blast. Yeah. And the interior of a copper dragon's lair is going to have a lot of winding tunnels, some of which will have likely been formed by the dragon using their acid breath to dissolve the earth and stone because they have an acid breath. As you will have probably discovered from today's Monster Madness match, which was the Copper Great Worm and the Marut. If you haven't watched that, go over to our YouTube or our TikTok and watch it. Yeah, because we've had some really fun and some surprising battles as well. And this one was a really, really good one. But within a Copper Dragon's Lair, they're going to have a lot of very thin walls, a lot of walls that are basically fake walls that are just mud that has been put up to make the appearance of a solid wall. And these are places that are good for hiding or spots where the dragon can literally crash through the wall and take an invading group of adventurers by surprise if they don't want them in there. It's the worst Kool-Aid man ever. (laughs) Oh, yeah. That said, if your adventuring group does for some reason happen into a Copper Dragon's Lair, you really, really want a dwarf or two for that stone set. Yeah, stone cunning is definitely something you're going to want. Or, you know, announce your presence and don't take anything. Yeah, don't be a dick and steal their stuff. And, you know, they'll probably have some fun, a nice comedy show, maybe dinner. You'll be set. Yeah. They really like to harass chromatic dragons uh, because... In lore, the territory that they like to put layers in overlaps a lot with the territories claimed by reds or blues who will attempt to kill or chase off a copper dragon if they find one. But copper dragons really like they see it as a challenge to see how much they can irritate a red or blue dragon without actually resorting to violence and getting away with it. So this is pretty much like the class clown taunting the school bully. Because again, reds and blues tend to have a more volatile temper. And so again, it is that, you know, they're standing in front of the teacher and that class clown just needling that bully while he's getting red in the face, just seeing how far he can push the bully. Because once the bully swings, he's going to get in trouble anyway, which is still a win. Right. But it's almost like the Native American concept of counting coup, seeing how close you can get without actually inflicting violence upon your target. Exactly. And so with this temperament and the personality and the type of treasure and stuff this Copper Dragon likes, it really makes a perfect fit for him to be in or around Vertigree itself. And again, we have this fairly large dragonborn population in any way. Bards. Um, you know. <laughs> Hey, why not? It fits and it becomes a perfect foil for that green dragon. So now you've got these two 
competing entities. They both love mind games. They like trying to get one up on each other. Neither one of them are going to go an outright violence. So you're not going to see an outright war or conflict between these two. You're going to see little pawn movements and little shifts and little things like that that are really going to shift power. Little jokes, little barbs, little things to irritate or to annoy to either drive out the green or for the green to be able to fully take over. And so, like I said, the power dynamic between these two can be a really, really neat little dance we can set up. And I like the concept that the bulk of the dragonborn in this diaspora would be copper skinned. Yeah, I like that too. (laughs) And that this copper dragon that we're going to be using is the original sire. (laughs) Well, the original figurehead of this collapsed state. Oh, yeah, that would make a lot of sense, too. Because rather than going through with the actual proper official bureaucratic statesman sort of deal, he's a practical joker. He's not going to take it seriously and everything just falls apart. Yeah, no, I like it. Yeah, he's interested as long as it's fun. And if it's not fun, because again, an ancient worm, the lives of a normal mortal is going to be a blank to him. And they're not going to stay in one area constantly. And that could have been while he was out and about doing something else was when this... He may have not even been home at the time. Yeah, he was out having lunch somewhere, you know, maybe having a conclave or something with some of his other dragon friends when this famine hit. And so he came back and he's like, well, okay, that sucked. Okay, now what? (laughs) And then he sees this green sort of encroaching on his turf. And now it's time for fun. And now it's time for fun. (laughs) And one of the regional effects for coppers that we really like that we're wanting to incorporate here is that rodents and small birds within a mile of their lair can speak draconic and speak well of the copper dragon, but cannot identify him or his location. Right. And so that comes really cool too. So if we're going to have any kind of rangers, again, a large amount of dragonborn in the area, druids, anyone with speak with animals or anyone that can speak draconic, you're going to have this weird shift even with the animals because you're going to have all of these small vermin and small critters that are going to be the eyes and ears of the green dragon. But But they're going to be talking up the copper dragon. Right. And so, you know, whether or not they want to, maybe they feel like they're scared of the green dragon and they have to serve it. They like the copper dragon, but the green dragon's, you know, got something on them. Or maybe they just are impelled to speak up the copper dragon because another fun effect of being close to the copper dragon is within a mile of the copper dragon's lair. People just will randomly burst into laughter. Doesn't matter how serious the topic is, you just start start laughing. giggling. (laughs) Which can be really cool because, like, if we happen to be in the mines, wink, wink, and something very serious is going and you start laughing in some dude's face, that's probably going to get you called in the pit later tonight. Yeah, (laughs) I can definitely see that. I mean, dude's talking about how, like, maybe his wife cheated on him or his grandma died or something and you just start laughing in his face. It's like, okay, you and me, pit, let's go. (laughs) So we wanted to talk a little bit broad strokes about what sort of a scenario you could set up here with these pieces. We want to have an inciting incident, so something that happens to kick off the story. We need the relevant factions for the story, and we need to have what happens with the escalation and what is the denouement, what's the climax and the resulting resolution following that. Right. So we had been talking for a while. James had actually come up with a scenario a while back that unfortunately we didn't have the time or energy to do much of anything with where there were 
these goblinoid bandit gangs riding wargs that were harassing the caravans coming into and out of town. Because, I mean, really, you're having this huge supply train for a large town, small city. These things are going to be ripe for looting. Yeah, and they're going to be operating on a schedule. So you're going to be able to say, you know, at 2 p.m., the caravan is going to be coming past this spot and we're just going to hit them and grab what we can and go. Again, we were trying to reference kind of that old West feel. So you had like your stagecoach robberies or your old train heists, you know, that kind of thing where you knew what was coming. You knew what was going to be on the supplies and you knew when they were going to be there. Yeah. And one of the things that we wanted to do initially is that the Green Dragon is involved within the town, specifically involved with the company. We weren't entirely sure where we were going to put them yet, but we wanted them to be involved with the company, but they also control the bandits. Right. So they're basically double dipping on this. Right. And so what we were kind of thinking, because as Ian said, you have these large city states and a lot of them, if not most of them, are led by a dragon in one form or another. So the dragon could be fairly high up within the city-state that the company comes from, and the Green Dragon itself could possibly be on the board or somewhere, because, again, Green Dragons want to get their treasure and their loot with as little effort as possible. They're kind of into the whole machinations of things. And so they're with the company, and now this company is going to move into this area where they've set up their lair, and it's theirs. So now they can kind of, you know, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. So now they are on the board of this company, so they have some machinations in there. They can kind of see... So they can get as much money from the company as they can. And if they can eventually do something to drive the company out and revacate the area, that's just a double win for them. Yeah. And so we were trying to figure out where we were going to put them within the company because we want it to be a secret that they're in there. And initially I had suggested the purser or the master of coin, the person who is in charge of paying out the caravaneers whenever they bring in supplies, paying the guards, giving the guild the paycheck, basically, for all of the miners that they can distribute to the miners, that sort of thing. Which but would I, be a really solid place for the Green Dragon to show up, honestly. But I think I have found a better place. What have you got? The Captain of the Guard. I like it. Because the Captain of the Guard is also in charge of the Black Market. Which fits perfectly with the Green yeah, they're running the black market, so they're going to be skimming off the top. They get a commission for keeping the black market black. Right. And that's how they're going to get all of these raw emeralds that are coming out of the mine that they're using as currency in the black market. Right, because favorite treasure. So again, a beautiful fit. They're going to be skimming off the top of the black market. They're also skimming off the top of the company. So now they're double dipping on that as well. They're also in arguably the most powerful position of the company within the town. Yes. Because they control the guards exactly. who have all the swords. Because, I mean, again, if that caravan's coming through and, oops, your stuff got looted, I'm sorry, we had to cover a shift over here. So sorry. So terribly sorry. How can I make it up to you? Here's some script. Yeah. <laughs> so they're going to be controlling guard details. They're going to be able to say if some, one of the guards gets too nosy or starts getting a little disobedient, they change their assignments and they either shape up or they meet with an accident. 
Oh, no, it's because accidents can and do happen, boys and girls. They certainly do. I like this, too. The other thing I really like is we established, aside from the raw gems coming in, the other big thing that people are paying a lot of money for on the black market is game. But as a green dragon, they're going to be eating a lot of that game themselves, which just drives those prices up even higher. Absolutely. And so that creates artificial scarcity that keeps the price up. Yeah, no, I mean, that is a perfect fit. They're running this town like four different ways and nobody knows it. Yeah, and it's going to be great. And then the Copper Dragon, we wanted them to be in a position where they could make the most of their jovial, personable traits and also their trickster sort of demeanor. And stick to the green whenever possible. And I think what we decided on was the Copper Dragon is going to be the cleric of Garl Glittergold within this town. They're going to maintain the shrine to Garl Glittergold, which is going to be just inside the entrance of the mine. I love it. This works really well because everyone, again, the mine is literally the heart of this town. So people are going to go in. So he will have eyes on pretty much everyone. Again, how things are going to go back and forth. He's going to be kind of giving everyone hope where that green dragon's kind of wanting to make everyone feel insecure and tenuous about everything. He's going to give them reassurance and all the good feels. The other thing too is, again, a cleric, they're going to be giving, there's going to be charity. He's going to give them food. He's going to kind of cover whatever those needs that might have fallen upon the people if they can't meet a bill or hard times fall on them where they might be more inclined to go to the black market to fill in those gaps under the control of the green not knowing he can subvert the green by just giving them stuff for free absolutely so yes the green is the captain of the guard so he's going to have the loyalty of the guards he's going to have the guys with the swords there's another faction that you can get that you would want if you don't have the guys with swords. And that's the larger group of individuals who are all very strong, muscular individuals with pickaxes and shovels. Yeah, I mean, really, when those two come to blows, it can be a numbers game sometimes. Because the dragons may very well know who one another is. They probably do know that they one another is a dragon. Right. And it's part of the charade that they don't reveal that the other one's a dragon. Right, because bringing it out in the open ruins the game, really, because they are both playing the game. And really, in this case, the life and lives of this town, frankly, is a game to them. It's how they do. Yes. We are all pawns. <laughs> yeah. And their friendly control, if you'll forgive the term, of the miners, their camaraderie with the miners, that's a better term. Yes. Is their insurance policy to keep the green from sending all of his guard lackeys into the mine to deal with him. Right. Because yeah, they are an ancient copper dragon, but if 30 guards come in and try and gank the cleric, they then he's either... going to have to, yeah, he'll have to break the masquerade as it were. Yeah. yeah. To borrow from world of darkness, he'll have to break the masquerade <laughs> and then the gig is up. Right. But if that same dragon has 120 miners that will step up and protect him from the 30 guards, that's a whole different ballgame. Because if the guards get too pushy in the mines, well, again, accidents do happen. Yeah. And a mining accident is a mining accident. And two, going back to the green, that could be a way that the green kind of pairs back 
his problematic guards is he might send them in to do something kind of shady within the mines, expecting an accident to happen. And again, the two dragons will play off each other back and forth like this. Yeah. So our inciting incident, what were we going to go with here? I think we were going with just like in the town, either he came on his own or he developed a skill. But I think we need just an extremely well-known artificer. And as I said, I took a lot of concept for how this would work and the concept of Vertigree from this song. And in this song, the whole Copper Wars thing start because there happened to be an exceptionally good craftsman who made such good materials that people stopped shopping anywhere else and only shopped with this one guy. So all of the surrounding marketers kind of got pissed and was trying to push him out of town. And kind of keeping that fill is that there's just this really renowned artificer and maybe he has supplies coming in, which ties back to the green because if all of a sudden his supplies on his caravan go and he has orders to fill, then he's going to have to go to the black market to fill out, get supplies to fill out that order. So now he owes a favor to the captain of the guard, a.k.a. the Green Dragon, who wants to keep people of renown anyway. So again, it all loops and it ties in beautifully with that Green Dragon. Yeah, absolutely. And and so the inciting incident, we would set this up as the PCs are guards on this caravan coming into town. Right. And the bandits, who are also servants of the Green Dragon hit the caravan, steal the artificer's gear, and make off with it. And when I was writing this encounter, this was something I did that was really fun, is this is going to be an encounter that your players are intended to lose. You're not going to really railroad them in, but the way I wrote it is that these goblinoids are going to be coming in on wargs, and they are not interested in fighting, they are interested in stealing. So they're going to come and try to loot whatever they can off the caravan. If the party engages them, they will engage for a little bit and then kind of back up and draw the party away. And as the party chases one, two, or three of these raiders, then the rest of the raiders are going to come in behind and steal from the caravan. If they turn and try to chase them, then the other group's going to come and try. And the raiders' purpose, again, they are not interested in fighting. They are interested in stealing as much as possible. Absolutely. And so that gives us the hook, because the PCs were on this caravan either they did a good job of defending the caravan and that was the only thing taken in which case they would get a certain commendation for you know their performance in repelling the bandits right or they didn't do very well and a lot of stuff got taken and they are told by the caravaneers look you gotta go and recover all that stuff or, you're not or we're pay. not paying you. Exactly. No. And that's the way they can be in the town. They can start trying to hunt down for clues, figuring out where these bandits came from. They can start learning about the who's who and the interactions of the town as well. So this really leads people really well in and gives them a beautiful jumping off point to start exploring. Yeah. And then so we can have it where basically part two is going <laughs> to be them figuring out where the bandits are and going and getting the stuff. Because if they successfully defended it, the artificer will say, hey, you guys, I was told, fight really well. Those bandits made off with my equipment that I need to do my job. Here is some coin. Go get it back for me. Yeah, no, I like that. And that leads in really well to a lot of different possibilities. And they can start 
learning about the various factions within the town and interact. Once they are there, once they find these bandits, whether or not they kill them, they do find whatever or don't find whatever. A couple other scenarios I came up with that would be kind of fun would be either, because again, when they're there, they can kind of choose which side of things they want to be on once they learn it's there. So some other incidents I had was some stuff with the mine. I thought, you know, kind of doing some stealth missions, either they are there hired to sabotage the mine if they're working on the green side or to find saboteurs if they are working on the copper side. So again, you have to either try to sneak in and set up some charges or do something to cause some cave-ins in the mine, maybe to kill a large group of miners that are a problem so the guards can have a reason to go and establish more law. Or again, maybe the miners have heard that there's some sort of action, so you have to go in and find these people. So it's going to be a lot of detect motive and sensing and things like that with combat within the mines, but also where the mines are supposed to be a largely neutral territory, you're going to have to be very subtle about it or ensure there's no witnesses either way stealth. Yeah. Fighter's definition of stealth is to kill everything that moves, right? Exactly. Another scenario I was thinking of is if eventually you have these goblinoids kind of coming out and maybe they're trying to establish a siege on the town. Maybe they want to drive you out or maybe just drive the artificer out because he is bringing too much renown to the town, which is going to make it established. Maybe the artificer is trying to establish a guild or something. So you could set up some sort of siege You could have kind of your street warfare. You could have some night battles or a duel at high noon. I was kind of tinkering something we might want to do later, Ian and I, is establish siege equipment. You don't see a lot of siege equipment in the D&D rules, which I think could be a lot of fun. You could probably do a bunch of like group checks on crafting during your downtime to see what kind of equipment you could build or the quality of equipment um, there. If you go into the ship sailing and ship combat rules in the Ghosts of Saltmarsh book, there are stats for mangonels and ballistas that are on the ships that you can pretty easily pull off and turn into their own individual independent units. I had missed those. No, that would work perfect because I always thought a siege battle would be a really fun thing to do for D&D. And I um, think there may actually be ballista catapult mangonel all of those things in the dungeon master's guide somewhere i've missed them then i remember seeing them at one point i can't remember where gotcha yeah that would be great again with this artificer here i do know we've talked about this where there are variant rules for firearms so you could have like steam guns or cannon or something like that you could really build those in really well you could do more wagon raids or train robbery type scenarios which would be really great And hearkening back to our trap episode, something that I've always wanted to do that I didn't mention the trap episode is kind of doing like a defensive minefield, either that you're walking into or that you're defending from. So as you're coming in and these spells would largely be, I mean, you'd have some direct damage, but they'd be like slow or grease or feeble mind or disorient or color spray, things to kind of slow the opponents down or daze them so you can defend easier or better. Yeah, so I just happened to have the Dungeon Master's Guide next to me. Oh, perfect. And yes, there are stats for siege equipment in the Dungeon Master's Guide, page 255 and 256. Perfect. You you have ballista, cannon, suspended cauldron, mangonel, ram, siege tower, and trebuchet. No, I love that. And so you could actually siege, like if you have a city wall, you could siege the walls of the city or even do a siege within the mines would be really interesting as well. So two great places you could hold a siege. Oh, yeah. The guards besieging the mine, having all the miners within the mine. Yeah, you could have like a just a good old fashioned miner strike. 
Mm, yeah, we totally yeah. need to do that. We really, really need to write that up. <laughs> I love it. But I can definitely see that the captain of the guard would be trying to make the artificer's life difficult. Yes. Because as we have established, the green dragon doesn't want this artificer there. Right. Or if it's there, he wants it under his control. Right. And so he's going to try and use his iron fist to stamp down and either control or drive off this artificer. I would say this artificer shop's roof catches on fire probably at least once a month. (laughs) He's just like built in, you know, an early fire suppression system. (laughs) He's just completely gone away from any wood timber construction. It is purely stone with a shale roof. Yeah. (laughs) No, that would make a lot of sense. Um, Yeah. But this could be also a way that you would end up being able to connect the captain of the guard and the bandits are connected is that maybe after you successfully recover the artificer's kit, a bandit attack happens on the town and the bandits specifically target the artificer's house to try and, you know, steal whatever they're going to steal or just break it down or just break it down. Cause that captain of the guard is absolutely going to be selling some sort of insurance. Oh yeah. But what it's going to be is that you're going to be able to establish peace together that the way that these bandits were able to get into town was because there was a botched guard assignment. Oh, yeah, that would make perfect sense. And so there was just a gap in the watch. The bandits knew where that gap was because the same person is coordinating both and they just slipped right in. And so then the party would have an encounter where they would be defending the artificer, ostensibly, from these bandits. Or with the bandits, again, depending on what side they tried to go, trying to drive them out. But yeah, no, I like that a lot. And that would give the fodder to start putting the pieces together and establishing that the two groups are connected. Right. And I think if you wanted to do it eventually, I think a throwdown with one side or the other with the dragon, I think maybe if you were sided with the green, maybe the captain of the guard goes down with you into the mine because he is finally going to shut down the mines because enough issues has happened. Maybe there's been enough accidents within the mine. They have to shut down the mine for everyone's safety. And at that point, the copper dragon reveals himself and says no and the green dragon reveals itself encounter so now you've got dragon on dragon with there and you could have this huge layer effect or inversely if you're siding with the copper dragon and the town of a degree maybe you find and corner and confront the captain of the guard and so now you've got the green dragon with the town guard backing him and so you could have this eventual throwdown with a dragon one way or the other at the end. Yeah, I would almost see this as being one of those where the dragons are fighting each other. Yes. And then you are boots on the ground, either with the miners attacking the guards or with the guards attacking the miners. Yes, absolutely. And either way, I would say neither dragon perishes. Either one backs away and flies away because there is a lot we can still do here in Verdigree. This has actually grown up to be a nice, very supple settlement. And I am sure we will come back and visit again. Yeah, because I'm seeing this as a tier one adventure so this is levels one to four yeah a third fourth level party is not going to be able to tangle with an ancient dragon no (laughs) no 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 they're not going to be able to tangle with a cr 23 24 dragon right well they will for a round and then the breath Breath weapon will dissolve them yes (laughs) 
um, because one of them's poison, the other one's acid. So if they if they side against the copper, they will literally be a puddle of goo. Yep. Okay, you failed your saving throw. I need you to roll 3d6, and I need another 3d6. And go ahead and roll another 3d6. And I'm rolling a new character, aren't I? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that's generally the idea that we had. Right. And so this is, um again, I'm not sure what we're calling this. The Copper War was a great name. Again, the Copper War by the Cog is Dead. They're on Spotify. I'm sure you can find them on YouTube. It really is a fun song. It has a very steampunk feel to it. And again, I enjoy music. I pull a lot of inspiration from music as well. Yeah, I'll find the link because I found it on YouTube. I'll find the link to the video and I'll include it in the show notes. Okay, perfect. But yeah, I mean, we could call it the Mithril War because yeah. it is a Mithril mine. Yeah. I like it. Yeah, no, the Mithril War, that works perfect. Um, it will probably be a while before we write this one up because <laughs> that's writing an entire adventure module is a huge undertaking. It and, really is. And um, I cannot turn around and do that one in a week. No, but we will. We do intend to get this out. There is quite a bit we would like to see. And again, I am sure we're going to be revisiting Verdigree. Again, as this town has grown, even on us, it's one of those things, like I said, the best parts about D&D is when you have a character or an area and it starts taking a life of its own. And Verdigree has definitely started Absolutely. to do that. Yeah, all just from, you know, making a frontier mining town in an episode 70 episodes ago. <laughs> and this is how far we've come with it. No, I love it. I'm super happy. All right, so I, that does it for today's episode. If you have any comments, suggestions, or ideas, please send us an email at undercommontaste at gmail.com or send us a direct message through our Twitter account at UCT Homebrew. You can also find us on Instagram and Facebook at UndercommonTaste. We are in the middle of our Monster Madness 2022 tournament. Today will be the last match of round one. We're going to start into round two tomorrow. You can find all of our summary recaps of our fights on our YouTube channel and our TikTok. Just search under common taste, or you can catch the post on our Twitter account goes up around noon every day with a link to either our YouTube or our TikTok. I'm alternating between the two just to try and get a little bit of traffic to both of them. We are also on Patreon, patreon.com slash undercommontaste. That's where we put all of our write-ups. Our most recent write-up will be our hearse grub which we made last week with Rue, who organized the TTRPG bundle for trans rights in Texas. That was a ton of fun. That was a ton of fun. So that is up on our Patreon right now. It is for free. Our most recent patron exclusive is our guide to heirloom items. So guide to give you some inspiration and some examples of heirloom items to create your own items that level with your characters. That is available to patrons of all tiers, $3, $5 or $10 tier. So if you would like access to that, and if you'd like to help support the show financially, please consider coming over and becoming a patron. Finally, we are on Discord, and you can find a link to our Discord in the show notes. If this is your first time listening to us, we are so happy you found us. You can find our other episodes wherever you listen to your podcasts. We're on Apple iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Google. As always, please give us a rate and review. This helps increase our visibility, lets us know more of what you want to hear about. Also, join us and subscribe to our YouTube or TikTok. We generally have our write-ups and our shorts on there as well. The other thing I wanted to shout out real quick is the fundraising challenge that Rue was talking about for the trans rights in Texas is still ongoing. Again, 500 games for five bucks. There is a lot of really awesome content. That's still going. 
If you're interested, go check it out. Donate some funds. Again, five bucks or more if you want. Really good stuff available on there. So definitely grab that if you get a chance. Yeah, there are definitely some great games in that bundle. There are some that I was really excited whenever I found them in there. So yes, do please go and pick up that bundle. It's for a great cause and there's a great pile of stuff in there. So thank you everyone for listening. Stay safe. Next week, we are going to have our interview with John from Tale of the Manticore talking about adapting Dungeons and Dragons for solo play. So we're going to have the live stream of that interview this coming Friday, the 18th at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, 6 p.m. Pacific on our Twitch channel, twitch.tv slash taste. Come over and watch us live if you can. If you can't, then you can catch the interview either on the podcast or or the video on our YouTube channel next week on Wednesday. So thank you everyone for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you next week. Happy gaming. Thank you for listening to another episode of Undercommon Taste. You can find links to all of our social media accounts, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch, as well as our Patreon and Discord channel in the show notes. Our theme song is Massacre Anne, written and performed by Mary Crowell and used with permission. You can find more of her work at marycrowell.bandcamp.com or on Patreon at patreon.com slash drmarycrowell. Our logo was illustrated by David Sutherland. You can find him on Instagram at willex underscore 73 or on DeviantArt at deviantart.com slash David Sutherland. Thanks again for listening. Stay safe. We'll see you again next week.